Welcome to the Dallas-based Innovators Podcast presented by LouderCo. I'm your host, Andrew Louder. We believe this entire Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex is filled with people innovating. We designed this podcast to highlight the innovative things those business leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and problem solvers are doing day in and day out. We're in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, and in these uncertain times, Along with our usual rich content, we're bringing you the topics we think you'll find helpful to guide you through some of the stress and ambiguity you're facing in your business. As always, this show is brought to you by my company, LouderCo. We find our clients' profits through artificial intelligence and better operations. To learn more about us and schedule a conversation, head to our website, louderco.com. Take a look at our response to this pandemic, a service we're calling Business Resurgence Services. Things are very different right now. We believe you must reshape your business if it's going to succeed in this new normal. We're here to help. We'll design and execute your new operating playbook so you can get past the uncertainty and get back to profitability. Your comeback awaits. We're about to get the show started. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us a review. And now, enjoy our guests and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Dallas Space Innovators Podcast brought to you by Louder Co. I'm Andrew Louder, and I'm excited to share with you part two of a really interesting conversation I've been having now between Mike Courtney and Mark Good. Uh, if you recall, Mike is the uh, CEO and a futurist over at Aperio Insights. Mark is CEO over at Commerce Basics, both previous guests. And we last left our, our, our previous conversation uh, around uh, the topic of innovating in the pandemic of COVID-19. And we really set the stage in our previous episode around the overall situation. What, what do we find ourselves in? What's the current state of the country, of business? What are the things we should be looking out for that maybe have changed uh, since you know, the beginning of this year and even just in the last few weeks? And I'm excited to get into today's topic where we're going to look into more of the innovation uh, and, and what businesses can be doing to innovate in the face of COVID. We're going to jump into the topic of timeless needs and constraints and, and things that I think could really be truly actionable for business leaders out there. And I'm excited to dive into it. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for uh, having us, Andrew. Good to be here again. Glad everybody's healthy. So far, so good. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, we, we, you never know when uh, when something may happen. You know, I think as we were um, chatting prior to going on uh, into the recording here, you know, we've each experienced some some new things here just over the last uh, week or so since we spoke. Um, I love to jump into that because I think that'll really feed into a bit of. You know some of the change in human behaviors. It may even get into some of the constraints businesses are going to be f- uh, feeling inevitably through this. You know we've seen even uh, Disneyland, Disney World over um, abroad in China start to open up, and you know we're we're starting to learn and see how other companies are are doing that as well. So I know a couple of you guys especially have had a couple of interesting experiences. Uh, Mike, I love for you to 
and maybe share what you've been through here just in the last week since we last spoke. Sure. So I did something that would uh, most people consider foolish, which is uh, right now at this time of night, anyways, that I actually uh, took a flight uh, up and back to New York. Um, I actually flew in and out of LaGuardia um, for a very special purpose and special reason, which was to go out and test some new technology uh, at an airport up in Islip, uh, where we installed some technology that's meant to help reduce pathogens in the air and on surfaces and uh, install the gear and actually do some pre and post testing. So that required me to actually have to get on a plane for the first time and gosh, a long time, which for me is, it was like two months, um, which for me is a long time. So uh, I flew up and back. Uh, it was about uh, maybe 25%, 30% full, uh, both directions. Um, but it was a very surreal experience to be on a plane and, and going to an airport, especially in that part of the country. So um, uh, again, a very unique experience, but I made it back safe and knock on wood so far. I'm feeling okay, which might just mean I'm asymptomatic, but uh, I'm sequestering or quarantining myself uh, regardless for the next two weeks just to make sure extra, extra positive. So I, I'm curious, Mike, on a scale of, of ner- nervousness, right? If you know, zero to 10, let's say a few months ago traveling, what would be your level of nervousness or uncertainty versus what you perhaps felt uh, last week? Um, I mean, normally, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've probably done 2 million miles in my life, uh, 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 flight miles on collection of airlines. So normally I have to ask the person next to me, have we taken off yet? Cause I don't even notice. Um, this time again, every part of the process, every step in the process was, you know, something that you had to just prepare yourself for. And I have to say, I was probably, probably about an eight, eight and a half in terms of just on edge um not as bad being in an airport you can be away from your people and social distance but you know on a plane um you know it's it's something we have to think about everybody was uh, that i noticed being good wearing masks uh taking precaution uh the airline was fantastic about really ensuring that everybody was doing the right things taking the right steps and they were on it on it on it um so again it's just it's a weird experience to be in given what we're going through right now. So. Absolutely. And what, what were some of the changes in procedure you saw between the airport and the airplane? You know, again, just, uh, you know, you, 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 when you did see people working, you saw people cleaning, um, things that, you know, maybe normally were only cleaned at night once everybody had gone here, we saw much more presence of people, particularly at the airport, just cleaning constantly. Um, uh, and other than that, you know, going through security, uh, boarding a flight, you know, you, you didn't have the normal, everybody goes, uh, uh, you know, sort of badges in, gets on the, uh, 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 gets on their way down into the plane and all bunches up waiting to, to get on. Everybody was very good and controlled about distance and, you know, not crowding the person ahead of them. So, um, a little bit, a little bit smoother process, I think, because of that. A little less chaos. Not everybody just itching to push past each other and get on the flight and get to their seat, but really being much more cautious. Yeah. How about um, 
turn times between the flight landing. Um, as you're waiting to board your flight, right? Your plane arrives at the gate. Any sense on how long it may have taken them to turn this, that plane around? No. That's I, something I I've been wondering. Yeah, it, it's, it's taking a, longer. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I didn't personally know when the flight ahead of me had landed. So, yeah. and I but, love but to pick I think what you're, yeah. well, well, One thing just to say is that I think what you're getting to uh, is something we do have to be aware of in general is that, you know, we're leaving the world where we can focus only on efficiency and, and not worry about all the rest of the things that, that we can focus and say, hey, let's let's optimize everything for efficiency. We're obviously in a situation now, and I think it'll continue for a while and maybe uh, for a long while. We're going to focus on things other than simply just, is this an efficient way? Is this the lowest cost way? Um, all of the extra things that are being done right now, all the extra time and, and care and attention that are going into all the experiences, the grocery store, airports, airplanes, you know, uh, food, everything. It, they're doing it with the utmost of care. And that is going to cost more money. That is not as efficient as just saying I did what was correct and required, but let's just bump this out. So we are going to leave the world of focusing on only on efficiency. Now that, that may be, I could see there being some pros and cons to that. You know, one thought I've, I've been kicking around in my head, is just, it, have we said goodbye to the the low fare sales, right? Where you know, $49 one way, $90, $90 one way, because the, the economics just don't add up in my head where, you know, perhaps it's, it used to be, I don't know, 10, no, 15, 20 minute turnaround on an airplane. Now, well, you've got to, you've got to do some, you know, spend a lot more time cleaning it, disinfecting it. Um, doing that involves time, involves money, involves more people, which involves more money. And so have we, does that then trickle down to the consumer, meaning it's a much more expensive flight than it used to be? And then, therefore, much fewer people are even flying just because of the sheer economics of it. Um, be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, let me jump in here, Andrew. I think there's uh, there's a couple of things, uh, and that, in fact, let me reference a um, I don't want to call it a conversation, but it was a discussion that Gary Kelly, the CEO of Southwest Airlines, had. Um, we're in a really interesting space in terms of the airline industry. They've taken uh, a lot of aid from the federal government, which in effect enables them to preserve payroll through September 30th. But their load factors are way too low to even break even. Um, they're running, I think, around 20 to 25% now. And to, to break even, and this is, I'm referencing the business models, pre-COVID business models, they need to be at around 67 to 70% at those prices and at those unit volumes to break even. They're a long way from that, but they've taken the money. And so what Kelly said, and I've also heard this from the head of communications for United is, look, we're gonna keep people on the payroll until September 30th, and then it's new business model time. And there was, a, uh, there was an analyst who said that he expects that the prices for tickets will rise at least 50% after the 30th, when airlines then shed the overhead of, and I hate to use that word when we're talking about human beings, but of people they don't need, you know, ground crew, flight attendants, uh, pilots, 
Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how they renegotiate those long-term leases for aircraft because they park 50% of their fleet. What are they going to do with those assets, right? Um, it's 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 really going to be difficult. I, I, I'll conclude with one remark. I, I don't know. I think it may have been Warren Buffett who made this comment. He was quoting someone else. They said, the only way to become a millionaire in aviation is to start life as a billionaire. <laughs> so, That's good. It's a money losing. Oh, it's tough. So I, I don't. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. And um, but I think to Mike's point about focusing on efficiency versus what I want to call safety, I, I've experienced this dynamic actually going back to the '80s when I was uh, working with a company that we developed a information security product, and when I would present the value proposition and got outside of the security department, IT security department of an organization, people would ask me about cost. And I would explain to them the various costs and they would run an ROI calculation. And this is before hacking was a thing, right? I mean, it was going on, but nobody wanted to talk about it. And so what I learned very quickly in the late 80s and early 90s is that a lot of these companies didn't want to pay the price for information security because it impacted you know, the organizational efficiency and operations of IT. And I see a similar dynamic going on now with COVID-19 is COVID-19 and the things that Mike has described, the precautions the airline is taking, safety is expensive and safety actually does not generate a return for you. It's done to encourage a, a customer to get on the aircraft. So in that sense, it contributes to revenue, but it's, it's overhead. I mean, it doesn't help you go faster in an airplane if you wear a mask. It doesn't help you arrive sooner if you clean the aircraft surfaces. None of that contributes to the efficiency of transportation. What it does is that it functions as a motivator to get people to fly in the first place. But that's a cost that we didn't have before, what was it, February or March. So that, that sort of cost implication, I think to Mike's point, um, and I and I love that word picture, Mike, that you had last time of the spinning, you know, plates. There's a lot of there's a lot of plates that have fallen on the floor, and I think as people try to get them and spin them again, there's going to be a lot more friction associated with safety. And this is true of hospitality. This is true of any anything in which there's humans that come in contact with each other, and therefore can facilitate the spread of this disease. You're going to have a whole new set of processes and maybe, Mike, to the point of your trip, technology that's going to be all about mitigating that risk. It's a big risk. Yeah. Well, and, and to that point, and I can't remember if I said it last time or not, but um, if in the air, let's just say in the air filtration and purification sector in general, you know, do we, if we care about the you know cleanliness of the air and the in the environments we're in, if you look back at, let's say, certainly our grandparents, air air quality or air quality in an HPC uh, sense was okay, great. I open the window when I need cool, and uh, I close the window and I fire coal or wood into a stove when I want heat. And if you said, well, Grandpa, what did you do in terms of filtration? He'd probably look at you like, well, what do you mean filtration? Um, and then eventually, you know your parents, or, you know, along the way, it's like, hey, we got this, this central heating unit, it uses gas or oil, it's fantastic. And hey, it's, it's, uh, it's got this filter thing on it. 
you know, keeps the dog hair out of there. Great. And then eventually it was a better filter. And then eventually HEPA, which hasn't really been around that long, right? HEPA's been with us, what, maybe 10, 15 years, where it was, you know, became sort of like, oh, it's the thing. And everybody, of course, has it. So maybe the next phase we're going to go into is a more active world where other technologies help us continually clean things that normally were only periodically cleaned in the past, including the air. Well, I agree. I, 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 uh, I watched a, a piece on one of the news channels, CNN, MSNBC, somebody, and they were interviewing a doctor who's an epidemiologist who looks at coronaviruses and uh, what are called zoonic diseases, which is anything that crosses a species. And her observation was, you know what? This is not only not new, it's not going to stop. And they're going to, you know, this, this, the boundary, if you will, between animal and human is very porous. And these viruses are going to continue to make their way across and they're going to continue to create problems for us. And so to Mike's point, having the ability to filter the air from these unwanted pathogens may well become a requirement. I don't know whether it'll be a requirement for survival as much as it is prosperity. I haven't really thought that through, but it will quickly move from a luxury to a necessity. I mean, you know, just right now, our ability, the three of us, to gather in a room and have this conversation is limited because all of us have concerns about not wanting to either spread the disease or get the disease, not only for us personally, but for our loved ones. And so what do we do? We have to do this, you know, virtually, right? And so I don't know. And there's, and honestly, as much as I'm a big believer in technology, this information communication experience that we're having here is still not the same as if the three of us were sitting in the same room at the same time. It's just not. No. I, I, I agree it's not. And yet I also think that we're not the first ones to face changes that force us to do things that were not the way they were. I mean, you know, imagine the people that said, well, you know, getting in this machine and driving from A to B, it's, it's just not the same. I, it's not the same as the horse, you know? And, and by the way, the horse, I think, was the first autonomous vehicle in a sense, because you could get on it and not be in any shape to do anything and slap it on the butt and, and it would get you home and you wouldn't yeah. have to do a thing. And that was what, it, that's what I think uh, the, the term having good horse senses, the horse had the sense to get itself home, even if you didn't have your wits about you to help it. No, I agree with you. And I, and I agree with you, Mike. I mean, I think we're going to have to embrace these changes, like it or not. I may moan and groan about the fact that we can't all three be in the conference room, but you know what? I'm over it. <laughs> what I'm hearing, I think, is you know, more than ever, safety first takes on a new, bigger, broader meaning. And perhaps it's, it's hey, we've got to revisit the business model to enable us to put safety first. Um, health first and take all the right steps to allow us to do that. Whether you're a consumer facing company like an airline or, you know, a hotel or a, a restaurant versus, you know, more, you know, corporate. And I know there's companies that I've spoken with now that are exploring ways to um, distribute, sanitize, replace, recycle PPE in the office setting. 
even some places that are are looking, you know, the open office concept has taken a step back as well. And so I'd like to kind of dive a little bit more into how kind of the the innovation that's coming out of all of this, guys. You know, there's going to be a lot of change. Um, I, I think about the three phases you talked about before, Mike, and the, the change is going to occur at different rates for different companies, but it's going to have to happen at some point and to varying degrees. You know, if you're a company, like where where do you start? Where do you begin to really hone in on your where you should be focusing on? You know, I think in our last conversation, we we started going down this path of timeless needs. And I'd love for us to go down that path a, little, a bit further here. And even if let's imagine ourselves you know, in that setting where we've got to get our troops together as a business leader and say, hey, um, where do we go from here? Right. What do we need to do to reshape ourselves? Um, I know I've got some thoughts around that, but Mark, I'd love to give you a chance to, to talk that through. Yeah, let me start with an anecdote that's uh, as fresh as yesterday, Mother's Day. So my wife and I got together with uh, one of our children, and uh, our daughter works for a large uh, institution here in Dallas, and she works in an open office setting, and she's involved in business development, uh, which, uh, as she says rather sardonically from time to time, it's smile and dial, so she's on the phone, right? And uh, everybody's in cubicles. And, and, and here's her story. She said about three or four weeks ago, someone came down in the office with a case of COVID-19 and they sent everybody home and they said work from home. So she did. And then two weeks later, you know, they got the all clear. Whoever had the COVID was recovered fine. They came back in the office and they had put up a few plexiglass shields, but they hadn't done anything in terms of bathroom doors and then there's a technical issue, which I know is ripe for innovation, is how do you wear a mask and carry on a conversation on the phone? Because it muffles the sound. There's an audio. There's an attenuation that occurs when you have something in front of your mouth. I mean, that's just audio engineering, right? So what happens is in this, it's not a boiler room operation exactly, but you've got everybody in cubicles and they take their mask off and they're talking and they're selling, right? And so what's happened? Another person came down with COVID. And so now the management of the company has said, well, no, nobody can work from home. You got to come into the office. And as a consequence of that, they now realize that they're not able to get together with their older parents and grandparents because of the vulnerability that they personally present to people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever, right? And that's generated some real ill will in that office because the employees are going, oh, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm coming in and I'm doing what you ask. And yeah, you put up the little plexiglass barriers, but we've got COVID spreading in this office. And now I can't see my, my mom on Mother's Day, my dad on Father's Day. I can't get together with my family members. Um, so to return to your question, Andrew, in my opinion, job one for any organization that, how shall I put this, requires or demands that people come together to work, the issue of safety at the office from a standpoint of viral, uh, preventing viral contamination or contagiousness of the spread of this virus, 
that's going to emerge real quickly as a high priority. Long before you even get to the business model of what you do, you have to make sure that your employees are safe and that they're not sick. Because, I mean, as my daughter said, you know, one of the, the first people that got sick, she was in her 50s. And uh, while she didn't fortunately pass away, she gave it to a parent and they died. And so it's a, it's a, it's, it, it, it's not an immediate life and death. This is not like the Black Plague, but it's still bad enough that I think companies are going to have to pay attention to the workplace. I guess that's the easy, short way to say it. And, and to, to, to build on that, Mark, is that I think, again, one of the things I expect to see come out of this or as a result is that, that businesses as well as people are going to have to start to do a better, more, uh, uh, more complete or thorough job of thinking about the impact they have, not only on the direct impact, the people they're with or working with, but the secondary and third impact that just like we went through years ago with smoking, it was like, well, you know, you know, I'm smoking, that's my choice. And, and you shouldn't tell me I shouldn't. Um, and then, you know, the research came out and says, hey, actually, you know, secondhand smoke was a thing. Um, and, and the data says, hey, that's actually bad, that it wasn't just, you know, I didn't have to force you to uh, get a cigar or a cigarette and smoke that to still have an impact on you. And we're seeing that same thing today that, you know, just because I choose to do something shouldn't shouldn't be allowed to put other people at risk, even if it's the second or third uh, time removed. Um, one thing I, I do want to just talk about in terms of um, it just came to mind as I was leaving the airport and opted to uh, head home and, and quarantine before I even stopped in the restroom is I was thinking, we're going to need some some innovations in plumbing because how many people do you imagine even so far, airport or office or anywhere, have taken their PPE, their gloves, for example, and flushed them? And, you know, you know that's not something that the average home uh, incinerator can really handle really well. So I, it's, it's even something as simple as, okay, how are people going to dispose of gloves or masks and is that going to create a knock-on effect on all these other systems around us? Something as simple as, you know, do we have to rethink our plumbing mechanisms? That's a great, that's a great thought. I, I, where I thought you were headed is the fact that um, I'm now developing real form with my elbows in terms of punching elevator buttons, you know, and wearing long sleeve untucked shirts, not so it looks cool, but so I can grab the tail of my shirt and use it to grab the door handle and open the door. Necessity, you know. I mean, yeah. it's, I feel like a total dork, but it's, I mean, I don't want to touch with my hands. And so it's either that or then wear gloves. And then to your point, Mike, I've got to dispose of the gloves and there's a whole process and you're right. Where do I dispose the gloves? And would somebody be offended if I put my gloves in their wastebasket, right? They might go, Hey, you need to put those. I mean, it's complicated. I, I, I don't have good answers, but you're right. I think that's ripe for some innovation. And honestly, I think, and, and this is something that I think we're all beginning to sort of become aware of, this is not a two-week or four-week problem. This is going to become, I hate to say it, but for a period of time, a way of life. And, and so 
I think to the people that are waiting for this to sort of go away, man, it's not going to go away. So that's where I think the opportunities from an innovation standpoint are going to come in when people realize this is not some passing issue. No, we're going to have to come up with some solutions that endure. It may, maybe it's just months. Maybe it's a couple of years. I don't know. But something. When when I think about the uh, the end of all of this, I'm starting to envision just like, I don't know why I go to like this this old school vision in my head, but the the newspaper printing with the big headlines, you know, vaccine found and people going to the streets celebrating, you know, with the the famous kiss of the sailor and the nurse in Times Square. Yeah, like Square. the E-Day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the ticker tape parade and suddenly everything's going to brighten up again. But uh, no, I don't think it's going to be that uh, on or off, right? It's going to, we've got a long haul ahead, but uh, uh, Mike, do you have anything to add on that? So uh, back to the point you asked a little while ago in terms of what can businesses do today? Where should they even begin? Where can they start? And I actually thought about the the, the podcast uh, uh, earlier today when I looked at the, you know, this morning, I brushed my teeth and looked at toothpaste tube and I thought, okay, when people first looked at the tube of toothpaste, the way they're, you know, manufactured today, nobody probably thought of those little plastic things that squeeze out the rest of the toothpaste, you know, and help you extract all of it. They probably didn't think of that until the toothpaste tube got pretty low to begin with. And so I think it was just a weird way of saying, you know, we, we tend not to think of, of, of innovations and in, before we see the issue. Well, we have a lot of issues in front of us. So I think where to start is just there. Where do you see the issues? And if you're in an industry that, that God bless you, has a, doesn't seem to have any issues in front of you, then great. Step aside. Everybody else has plenty. Ask, ask them what they need help with. Most businesses today, regardless of what industry you're in, have issues you're facing today. And, and I think we need to just start prioritizing which ones can we affect, which ones can we can we think about what we can't solve yet and and just get started even just whiteboarding out and and building the laundry list of things um, the 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 other thing that I'll show up for a moment is if we think about throughout time uh, there were things that for years and years we could imagine and we just didn't have the technical capacity to do anything about flight was one of them we could imagine flying we saw birds flying we're like well why can't i do that other than the fact that i'm 20 pounds overweight um why can't i fly and we imagine it and then eventually we had the technical capability and skill to make that happen to, to bring that to life so to speak and i think we're at that unique time in in history when if we really think of it we can find solutions whether it's solutions to you know what if 100 people an hour flush you know you know, gloves, you know, PPE gloves down a toilet that shouldn't, how can that be handled? Well, you can probably invent a way to handle it. Um, uh, I, I think we just have to start identifying what are the issues you have right now and start tackling those first, even if you haven't done a perfect job of prioritization or a perfect job of understanding all the other issues you also have. Because trust me, if you solve that one, there's going to be another one waiting for you. Let's just, you know, again, eat the elephant one bite at a time because there's a lot to a lot to go through. Well, let me give you an example again from a, and I'm going to draw from my experience in supporting the Department of Defense. Um, there was a, there's an, a large agency that doesn't get a lot of press because a lot of what they do is 
classified. It's known as the acronym is DTRA. It's pronounced DITRA, Defense Threat Reduction Agency. And I had a friend who was a retired Army colonel who worked with DITRA. And they had an interesting project, which was a, a chem bio detection project, because they had done a risk assessment and they determined that at some point a bad actor may be able to assemble a, a dirty nuclear bomb. This is a low yield warhead that its greatest damage would be in releasing a cloud of radiation in a crowded area like downtown Washington or downtown New York, right? And so that begged the question of how can I detect the presence of these subatomic particles that are in this item that in a dirty bomb and and detect it before it's detonated, right? And so this guy who's an army colonel, he's not a physicist, but he's just a really clear thinker. He went through the whole process of threat detection and how, without getting into a bunch of classified stuff, how they could detect the presence of this particular risk, right? Which was uh, a radioactive element that was decaying and was in, you know, let's say the second floor or the first floor of a home in Washington, D.C., right? And most Americans don't know this because you would never think about it, but uh, there's ChemBio sensors all over the central part of Washington, D.C., probably New York as well. And so the, the reason I'm headed down this path is that the virus is a pathogen that is also, that happens to be at least part of its time airborne. And if there was a way to detect that airborne pathogen, just detect it before you even prevent it. If you could just detect it. Now, now let's move into the world of wearables, right? So I just read a piece today about Apple's success with its AirPods and its smartwatches and how it's blowing up the market and how maybe the next series of Apple Watch will do two things, very interesting. One is track your sleep and the other is track anxiety because they can look at heart rate and oxygen level and they can determine whether you're getting into a space of anxiety and might be having a panic attack and they can actually intervene with a haptic signal that says, hey, Mark, you're getting a little anxious. Why don't you take a couple of deep breaths and practice some meditation and calm down, right? So now, now let's bring those two worlds together. So imagine that I have a wearable technology that can personally detect the presence of a pathogen that is in my six foot, 10 foot radius or zone. And that's connected to my watch, which has got a CPU that's enormously powerful, or my phone, and alerts me, hey, you're in a risky space. And again, you can't see this with your eyes. You can't see the cloud of pathogens that might be exhaled by someone who is you know, asymptomatic or early in their infection, where apparently with COVID anyway, they're highly contagious, right? But I, I'm not sure that's as much science fiction as it is a little applied engineering to where I could have a mask, I could have detectors, I could be connected to my wearables, and then with some sort of signal say, hey, you're walking in a dangerous space here. You may want to take a different route, or it might even be, you know, if I'm talking with Mike and all of a sudden the little sensor goes off, I go, hey, dude, when's the last time you were checked? <laughs> I've got, so anyway, that, I mean, that, I'm just spitballing here, but 
that that's the kind of those sorts of innovations are not as far as i understand from a technology standpoint those aren't giant leaps it's apply some money and um is there a use case for that i boy i think i could build a pretty compelling one if you can hit the price point right there's a lot of people that would like to know affirmatively is it risky for me to be where i am absolutely i, I think the point you're making mark is that we're moving from uh, uh from a world where many of the things that are dangerous to us are visible to a world where many of them are invisible i mean cyber is one of those things right you know you know i i, I can't see somebody you know hacking you know and, and sending a, a signal to my device or something but it's that invisible threat um that's an invisible danger um i in in conjunction with the work that we've been doing on this technology that helps uh, uh reduce pathogens not only in the air but on surfaces continually even when even when people are in that environment um and just continually uh, attack and reduce pathogens uh, I've been talking to a testing lab where I said, hey, one of the things we want to test, you know, is, is, is pretty low level. It's, it's, you know, maybe 30 or 40 parts per billion, you know, and in some cases as much as a tenth of one part per million. Can you actually test it? Because it's, it's not very much. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. Understand this. First, there's parts per million. I said, yep. Then there's parts per billion, then parts per trillion, then parts per quadrillion. We can test at the part per quadrillion. And I was like, whoa, okay, got it. So I guess my parts per million thing is child's play for them. So, and he says, yeah, we, we use a device that's basically the Ferrari of like, you know, uh, mass spectrometers. Um, and so it can detect, and again, this is technology available today, expensive technology. So the goal becomes cost reduction, but, you know, it can detect the kind of things that you read about, you know, hey, a dog detected and could sniff out that this person, you know, had an illness or had cancer or something because the dog's nose was so sensitive. Technology today can detect those things. It's just expensive. So one of the goals for society is going to figure out how do we invest money and reduce the cost of those things, reduce the cost so that it is part of the environment, part of the built environment. And just like when you go to a restaurant and somebody puts that little yellow uh, triangle thing that says wet floor to alert you of the visual danger, or, you know, to visually alert you of a danger, you're going to have the environment around you alert you to things that it doesn't have to be the gear in your Fitbit. Your Fitbit just needs to talk to the infrastructure and say, hey, there's something going on right there. And and even if it's, say, you know, take a right and, and go this way instead of go straight and go that way, simply because maybe there's there's more traffic right now and it's creating, you know, smog or something's going on. And it can it'll be able to detect things and really, really, again, increase that level of safety and security. We've always had the idea of safety and security, even cavemen with sticks, the idea of being safe and secure and clean and protected to a certain extent. What that means, that timeless need is still there. What it means to be safe and secure, clean and protected will change as technology evolves. Well, as I listen to you, I think of, uh, you know, in Hollywood, they, they always sell um, new movie concepts as like only. So they say, you know, cowboy aliens is like Star Wars, only a Western, right? So I imagine what you've just described, Mike, is like ways, only for virus. I mean, right, if I have an ambient computing environment, right, and I've got a lot of mobile devices, phones that have sensors, and then I have the infrastructure that you've described that's aware of 
the pathogens that might be in the air or on the surfaces, right? And we're, we're moving in the direction of ambient computing anyway, where I walk into a building that's smart or a city that's smart and it talks to me and it gives me direction and guidance. Why can't it tell me about the environmental situation? Why can't it tell me about pathogens? I mean, I think you're absolutely spot on. And, and you're right. It doesn't have to be the, the, the compute power and even the sensors don't have to be necessarily body-worn. You know, the fact that Apple has a watch that can actually detect heart rate is pretty amazing. And the Fitbit, right? That's a design-to-cost strategy that they followed. They're, they've been frantically working on how do I detect, you know, blood sugar levels without breaking the epidermis, you know, the skin layer, right? How can I do that from the surface of the skin? But you know, you can detect a pathogen without penetrating a body, right? You can do that with sensors. And you can start with sensors that are mounted in the infrastructure itself that simply talk to my mobile device or my wearable and say, there's a risk here. So that, again, from an innovation standpoint, you're exactly right. I mean, you could, and 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 then now, let me, I'll keep spitballing. We all know that a lot of this pathogen stuff is not only would it be great if there was a technology like you've described, Mike, where I can kill it. But I know that from the standpoint of moving the air and just dispersing the pathogens can have a huge effect on attenuating the risk because as they pointed out, the your susceptibility to c- catching the disease is a direct function of the concentration of the aerosols, if you will, or the or the particulate matter, the viruses that are in, let's say, a cubic meter of air that's around you. So if it's highly diluted, which it would be if it's being circulated, then your risk is actually reduced. That's why when we get together with family members, we choose to be outside, six feet apart, with a wind blowing, because the likelihood of passing that virus is very, very low if there is someone who's ill. So but again, this could be done with an HVAC system. You could have a smart HVAC system that, you know, so. Um, right. And even as, as you guys are talking here, it reminds me of you know, the three questions coming out of uh, a design thinking scenario, right? Des- around desirability, feasibility, and viability. Now, I think the desirability is going to be strong for things related to health, safety, wellness, you know, information, data, that sort of thing. But then for the innovators, right, is it is this concept going to be viable and feasible? You know, feasible from that technology standpoint, can we even develop this thing right now? Viable from a business standpoint, can we monetize it? Can we get it out at scale? And um, I have no doubt there are people at their homes right now, kind of like you've maybe you've heard the stories of Mozart and Ben Franklin during quarantine coming out with their their masterpieces or their greatest invention. Um I have no doubt there are people out there doing that right now. But even when I think about um, the businesses, the, the business leaders that you know already had a, a business in motion, they've been knocked down a bit. They've been, you know, they've they've hit um, a wall with COVID. You know, thinking about how do they retool, reshape, innovate to get out of this and to be, you know, in a better position in this new normal. I kind of look to three key phases and I want to kind of tie it back to our conversation a bit around the airline where, you know, I think first you want to look around at at demand, you know, how are customers buying now? 
how, what are customers thinking about when buying our product, right? So are they still going to be willing to come on board um, uh, and feel safe when they're playing the board, the airlines? Have we done all we can to make them feel that way? On the supply side would be then how do, how will we deliver our product or service now in this new normal, you know, meaning, well, turn times may be lengthened dramatically. You know, we're, we're going to need to um, negotiate better rates with um, you know, health and, and sanitization services. And then lastly, you know, support, how will operations support that supply and demand? Now you're talking more on the corporate side of things. Well, uh, how, where will our accountants sit? Where will IT sit? How are they going to be functioning through all this? Um, all along the journey, right? It's it's looking at safety and um, safety, even you know, for stabilization to get the company right, to get everybody feeling confident. And then I'd even say safety for um, supporting the new normal, right? What's given our new processes, given the new way we're going to be doing things? How do we need to ensure our our office is clean and safe. Are we putting in the right procedures? Can we even come back to the office? Do we keep people remote? Um, and all on that journey, you know, we talk a bit about constraints. You know, what are going to be those new constraints? Can we can we innovate in a remote setting? Clearly, if revenue's taken a hit, what does that mean to our R and D budget? Well, if that's been cut now, well, we've got some constraints there. We've had to lay off some people. You know, those types of questions that I. I know. I think as as people, as as a as a country, as a business, as an economy, leaders are going to want to you know get out of this thing and dig their way out, if you will. And and innovation is going to be the key way to do that. Love to hear your thoughts on that. So it, it brings to mind this. Last year, I did some work in uh, the automation and RPA space, and you say, oh, well, you know, there, there there's a lot of uh, uh, you know, controversy about, hey, should we really automate so much? And, you know, what about the people whose jobs are going to be lost because of automation? And and the CEO of one of the companies that we were doing work with um, said something that was really profound. And what he said basically is that if you look around the world, even in today's environment, 2019 at the time, that there's there was like in the single digits a percent of people in the world who really did a job that really used, you know, even a fraction of the human intelligence that we, that we all have. Uh, and that so many people still were, were doing things, basically manual labor, doing things that, you know, they're using their, their muscle as opposed to their mind. And that if automation can successfully shift people from doing things that are manual labor, and there's certain things that are manual that, you know, are going to be tough to replace or, or do with automation, but if we can shift enough people over, even some of them over, and say, hey, let a machine um, do that manual task and let's use you with a human brain that you've been given to think about things like only a human can and have all those people focused on innovation, focusing on thinking things in a way that human can, that machines can't, and or man plus machine together, that there, his, his point was that there's so many things that the world still has to solve. There's so many problems we're solving. And right now, the vast majority of people in the world are not really using their mind to solve them. They're, they're, they're using their body to, to push things around in a manual, physical labor way. And that wouldn't it be a great future if we could, again, even shift some of those people from a manual labor environment 
over into using their brain to think creatively with tools and machines to, to again, attack these issues. And I think that's, that's part of the long-term solution is leverage automation, robotics, et cetera, so that more of our, our working uh, brain power can be spent on really thinking through innovations that make a difference for everybody. Andrew, I have a kind of a, a mental image as, as I've been listening to everybody talk today. Um, imagine it's like 17th or 18th century and we're in the Netherlands or Holland and we have a problem with flooding and the flooding is getting worse and worse. It's a risk. It's, it's like an existential risk for the country, right? So finally, the decision is made. We need to build some dikes. And this is a massive infrastructure, right? It's a massive commitment, right? And so you have a, a, almost an industry that's developed in assessing the risk posed by the sea. And let's build this dike, which is a, a major change to the landscape of the Netherlands, right? And what you have is not only a major commitment to stop the flooding from the sea and basically re-architect, it's almost terraforming, right? That portion of Northern Europe. But you then have dike builders and dike maintainers. That's a new industry that comes out of this, right? Now, while all that's going on, once the threat has been dealt with, you still have the guys that plant the tulips, right? <laughs> they're, right. Still growing, they're still growing tulips, right? And so when I think about our economy, there's a certain kind of demand that I think is going to emerge at people that are going to be in the business of risk mitigation associated with the pathogen. And there's going to be, I'm going to call it a suite or an ensemble of technologies. Mike has alluded to some of them. We've been spitballing some ideas here today that are like the dike. They, they sort of keep the risk at bay, right? And once that's in place, then the rest of us who are just doing stuff, right, whether it's selling or, you know, innovating, and to Mike's point with automation or whatever, we can go back to work because it's safe. Just like for the, for the people in the, in the Netherlands, they could say, well, I can live here and grow here because my fields won't be flooded. I, I won't die, right? And that's sort of the way I think we're in one of those transitional phases where almost, I don't want to make this a global thing, but certainly in, in the United States, we're going to have to build a dike sort of metaphorically right. to keep this risk at bay and make it safe for us to return to the way we add value as an, in our economy. And, and again, to Mike's point, whether that's with more automation and having people climb the value chain in terms of labor, leaving physical labor behind and moving more. But remember, we talked a lot about that and that was a feature of our economy. We said, well, we're really smart. We're a knowledge economy. I remember that in the eighties, knowledge workers. Then it was, we're a service economy. We're gonna outsource manufacturing. And the Achilles heel, I think is now becoming apparent is that that service economy depended on face-to-face -face contact, on interpersonal contact. I mean, one out of four of the jobs in this country are retail which is in all of its permutations, right? And none of us thought that is a risk until COVID shows up. And so now we got a flood of a pathogen. We need to build a dike. And I think that's, you know, at a sort of, again, using an, a, a metaphor here, I think that's kind of what needs to happen. 
And and I think that dike building, if I can just kind of keep stretching that word picture a little <laughs> bit, is going to happen at a company level, like with my daughter's firm. They're going to have to figure that out. And I think cities are going to have to figure that out, states and countries. And uh, And I think that's where the opportunity is because I've had the opinion and there's a lot of people smarter than me that are like, this is a class of risk that is not going away. I mean, today it's, I think they call it COVID SAR-2 or something. There's a technical term for this, a medical term. That, uh, But this is a class of a problem. This isn't like, you know, kill it and we're done. No. This is like, welcome to the future. And as, as you're talking there, Mark, it, it kind of, you mentioned the dike building, right? The dike builders, those roles didn't exist before. I've been wondering, are, are we going to start seeing companies that have a chief health and safety officer or somebody that is focused on that for their particular business? You know, they're, liaison, they're a liaison with their local government, you know, regional government um, and national government, et cetera. And then they're, they're getting all that knowledge. They're feeding it to their teams and they're implementing new solutions to make sure that key people are, are healthy, not just now, but moving forward. You know, how this evolves may be well beyond this pandemic, even beyond the vaccination and all that. Um, that hopefully is forthcoming. But, but no, that's, uh, that's a great point you brought up there, Mark, because I think it's going to just open up a whole new um, wave of potential opportunities, new roles, new thought processes. Love it. And, and, and to go along with, a, you know, the, a new class of things that we're going to have to invent to come up with and people that have to do that. Think about something as simple as a smoke detector, right? I mean, dirt cheap, right? They're what, 10 bucks or five bucks and I'll practically give them away. And yet, you know, if if 100 years ago or 200 years ago, you would say, hey, someday there's going to be an item that can detect smoke. People look at you and say, use your nose, just smell it, it's right there. You know, is your tent on fire or not? Um, and, And today we have not only smoke detectors, that use technology, but, you know, you know, can detect carbon monoxide. And, and again, in the future, we, we may have things in our home and things in our environment that detect all sorts of things that, that we care about. Um, and, and not just, not just chemicals. I mean, could detect emotion and say, Hey, I'm not going to go down this street. I'm going to go down this other one because a lot of people having a bad day, negative emotions here. I mean, anything that we care about is fair game. It doesn't have to be a chemical. It can be a situation, an environment, you know, a sentiment, and and we'll be able to shift and steer and and again continually improve life. That's what technology is: is technology is tools that help us, uh, uh, you know, bend life to be to our will to do the things that we prefer, that we want, that we benefit from. Um, and I think we'll continue to basically use technology to make the world a better place. It's unfortunate we have to you know, uh, have the, the pain and suffering that we're going through now to get to that point. But uh, I, I just hope that we don't, we, we've paid for the lesson. Let's, let's take that lesson and let's, let's take what, what we've had to suffer through and, and, and make something good come out of it so that the next thing has, has less of an impact. And, and eventually someday, you know, the next big thing won't be as much of a big thing. It'll be you know, a small thing. Well, Mike, you, uh, let me uh, just offer one comment about not only that, but something you said earlier, which I think is worth emphasizing. 
this is clearly to the naked eye an invisible risk, right? We can't see this virus. But actually in our recent past, this isn't the first invisible risk that we've dealt with. And one that I was thinking about as you were talking, I was thinking about how in the 70s, scientists raised the warning of the hole that was developing the ozone layer and how the increased UV exposure, right? To Because, you know, the earth is this really wonderful place that's surrounded by an atmosphere that attenuates very, very harmful radiation that's blowing out from the sun and from other objects in space. And we're protected from that radiation by this atmosphere, right? And it turns out that we were trashing that. And so scientists had to say, hey, we need to get rid of this particular chemical that we're using in our you know, aerosol sprays for whatever and allow the atmosphere to heal itself. And in so doing, they actually saved lives. But I mean, I can't see UV rays. And the, the level of lethality of that is something that's measured in lifetimes, not like even with COVID is measured in weeks, right? So we took action as a people and as several countries. And we said, let's ban the use of these particular chemicals because it's destroying our protective area in the atmosphere, right? The ozone layer. So to me, this is like that again, only it just, the risk is not, you know, destroying the atmosphere. The risk is we have a pathogen and we need to build a dike and we got to start by detecting where the water is or where the risk is. So that's at least the way I think about the problem. So, but I think Andrew, to your point, um, I also want to echo your comment about a chief safety officer. Um, you know, the military has had those people for a long time because they deal with little things like weapons that explode, right? So they have to lock down munitions and lock down equipment and safety is a really big deal in handling what amounts to explosive stuff, right? Um, you know, you raise a really great point. I mean, I, I'd love to talk to some HR people about, hey, what do you say to an employee who says, is it safe for me to come to work here in this office? That's a thing now. Right. Because I mean, CEOs, I find a lot of the, the ones I've spoken with anyway here in the last couple of weeks are split, right? They, they feel like they have a responsibility to either investors, shareholders, the company to keep the, keep the engine going. And then, but at the same time, hey, I've got to keep safety in mind. And you know, I, it's a personal decision. Do I force them to come in? Do I not? You know, what's the what's the office got to look like to get them to feel a hundred percent confident they're coming into a situation they won't get sick from? So, yeah, I think I think it's a gray area that a lot of CEOs could likely use some help with, and somebody that's focused on it. I don't know. Maybe in the short term, it is full time. Maybe. Um, you know, moving forward, it's not, who knows, but uh, I definitely think it'd, it'd be a valuable position to um, to a number of companies out there. I would agree. Yeah. Well, guys, I know uh, we're coming up to the end of our time here, but would like to give you guys a chance to perhaps lend any parting thoughts as uh, before we wrap this epic, uh, bring this epic conversation to a conclusion. So I, I think the, one of the things you just said, Andrew, uh, in terms of, you know, how can I be 100% sure that, you know, I, I think there's very few things in life that we can be 100% sure of. And yeah, even, point. you know, unfortunately, even when it comes to things like safety, am I 100% sure that when I get in the car to go to the store in a normal time anyway, um, that that's safe? Well, 
I'm, I'm reasonably sure, right? I'm yeah. not 100%. Um, and I think we take calculated risks all the time. The difference for what's going on right now is that if somebody else is taking a greater risk, does that impact on our safety? You know, and that's why we have laws. That's why we have rules. That's why we don't allow, you know, for example, people to drink and drive because somebody taking risk on their part may actually in, influence my safety and harm me. Um, so that's the thing I think we're struggling with today is do we allow people to open their businesses back up? Do we encourage people to go back to work? Because we all want the economic engine to survive and we want people to have money to, to, to feed their family and, and do the things that they need to do. Um, and not everybody uh, uh, in today's world right now can do that. And that's really heartbreaking. But I think we have to take uh, a calculated risk to make sure that the actions of a few don't really negatively impact the actions of, of someone else who who was trying to stay safe and, and stay out of the fray. Um, and it's it's a, it's a tough it's a tough balance to strike that that right shift of okay how safe versus how how much focus on we need to move forward even if even if it's not 100% safe but we have to keep going we can't staff we can't stop halfway between the east coast and the west coast on this journey you know across America before there were roads we we still had to push forward and say yeah i don't know what's on the other side of that hill but I have to take reasonable care and keep pushing forward to some degree. Here, here. I think that lays up the uh, the next conversation beautifully. Between now and then, I'm going to think about building dikes. There you go. <laughs> I love it. Guys, you know, I, I appreciate y'all making the time to come on the show. And I want to encourage our listeners, you know, obviously our, our minds are wrapped around innovation, you know, solving problems. Um, to, you know, looking at the at the world as it stands today, there's so many problems out there that need solving. We love thinking um, in an innovative way. So, if there are companies, people, business leaders out there, uh, and I know I'm speaking uh, for you guys here, but if I know you all love speaking, uh, you know, thinking these things through, running scenarios, doing thought experiments, you know, for our listeners out there, don't hesitate to reach out to Mike and to Mark. Uh, pick their brains and myself as well, you know, throw me out there too. Uh, if you're looking for ways to innovate, if you're looking for ways to reshape your company, you know, uh, we'd love to be involved in those conversations and guide you through um, to a, a beautiful path forward. So on that note, you know, I'd love to thank you guys so much for making this time and making this conversation happen. And I'd love to also thank our, you bet, you bet. I'd love to thank our listeners uh, for you know, partaking in this uh, epic journey with us. Thank you all so much for listening to the Louder Co. Dallas Space Innovator Show. I'm Andrew Louder, signing out. All right. Mark Good, adios. Mike Courtney, have a good day. That's our show for today. We hope you took away something valuable. Be sure to visit LouderCo at louderco.com for more. Thank you again, and stay tuned for more from Dallas-based innovators.